As to the question of whether my own belief in God has ever been shaken, the answer is yes, certainly. But in hindsight, those are times I now prize. I think it is when we honestly grapple with our doubts, both large and small, when we wrestle with our uncertainties and perplexities, that we come to a wiser and deeper faith. In my life, I've been forced at a number of critical junctures to reevaluate what I believe, and that has driven me each time I am convinced in my hindsight to a more mature understanding of life, of the Christian way, of myself, and of God. Like many high school and college students in the 50s and 60s who grew up with a very literal understanding of Scripture, the credibility of my belief in the reality of God was seriously tested by the evidence for biological evolution. And earlier, from age 13 to 15 or 16, I struggled with the problem of pain and suffering and evil. The question of how a good God can allow such terrible suffering to exist in our world, an insurmountable obstacle for many. Uh, Carolyn actually asked that question when she was four years old. If God is good, she queried one day, why does God let bad things happen? I asked her mother to handle it. (laughs) I don't really know how to explain in what way my own anguished questions and doubts were resolved, but I'll give it a try. I guess several things happened over a period of time that helped. Things that I now think of as moments of divine caritas and grace, the intervening of that mysterious X factor of which Glenn Chestnut spoke. One day, when I was a high school student, a high school biology teacher whose class lectures were rigorously structured and taught from an evolutionary perspective, was explaining how a bird's feather was has interlocking barbs and barbules. When suddenly she stopped and said, most of you probably think I'm an atheist, but some of you have seen me at church and know me from church. She was, it turned out, a practicing Roman Catholic. I teach biology, she said, from an evolutionary perspective because that is the easiest and most orderly way to to teach such a complex subject. And I do believe that evolution is more than a theory. But when I sit and think, she went on, about something like the simple elegance of a bird feather, it seems to me that logically there must be an explanation beyond pure chance. And then she went on with her lecture on feathers. Her little aside pointed me to the mystery inherent in true science, to a larger way of thinking in which everything doesn't have to be either or and where there is room for ambiguity and strange paradoxes. Then in college, just as I was beginning to appreciate the opening chapters of Genesis as 
poetic rather than literal descriptions of creation. A geology professor who took us on wonderful field trips looking for fossil seeds and seashells in the Texas panhandle, uh, like my high school biology teacher said in his lecture one day, as a, again as a kind of footnote or side remark, I have no trouble believing that at some point in the evolutionary process, God endowed a particular species with a soul. That helped me to start integrating the science of evolution with the science of spirituality and eventually led me to the more sophisticated thinking of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Among the intriguing things that de Chardin uh, wrote, uh, uh, and, and he was a, um, a Christian mystic, a working, working paleontologist, and a Jesuit priest. Uh, among the intriguing things he said was that God does not make things God makes things to make themselves. This suggests that we can think of creation not as a one-time event, not as something that comes to us entirely ready-made, but as a continuous process, including the elements of chance, necessity, and opportunity. John Polkinghorne says, the picture is of a world endowed with fruitfulness, guided by its creator, but allowed an ability to realize this fruitfulness in its own particular ways. Chance, Polkinghorne says, is a sign of freedom, not blind powerlessness. So the history of the universe, the history of evolution of every sort, seems to me, to be the history of the interplay between opportunity, chance, and divine necessity, what traditionally has been called providence or divine will. By providence, I, I simply mean the ability of God to work with everything, including our freedom and the freedom of the universe, and certainly with physical matter to bring to completion the divine purpose. So, we have a human ape who might have walked on all fours, but instead walks upright, or who by chance might have had six fingers and a tail, but has only five fingers and is without a tail. But there is also this consciousness of some mysterious meaning to it all, a consciousness of God and the most intense desire for love. I don't think it necessary for me to figure out how to integrate this interplay between chance, necessity, and opportunity in terms of ultimate purpose. De Chardin talked about everything moving, everything evolving, everything uh, moving toward and converging in the omega point. As a Catholic Christian and as someone who had studied Christian theology, as well as hard science, Chardin was certainly well acquainted with the first chapter of St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which is actually a hymn, a song, about 
how it is God's kind intention and cosmic purpose to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. But I don't need to understand or to weave some uh, complicated, intricate, uh, far-out theory about how all that works to appreciate it. And I would rather align myself with God's purpose and be able to explain it. As I've already said, the existence of suffering and evil, especially among the poor and the powerless and the innocent, also shook my faith. Shook my faith both in the sense of mental assent and in the sense of trust. And it shook it hard. My father, Jesse, died of a brain tumor when I was eight months old, leaving my mother a widow with four children, ranging from an infant to a 12-year-old. My mother remarried when I was around three. And so my stepfather was always emotionally my dad, the only dad I ever really knew. When I was 13, he was killed in an automobile accident. And after that night, I, I guess I still believed in God. I believed that God existed, but thought God unjust and unfair. And certainly thought that God had no concern for a poor oaky boy like me. The next year, I took a stand on a school issue that was unpopular with my group of friends. And suddenly, I was without the emotional support of comrades I had known for most of my life, and just when I most desperately needed it. By the time I reached high school, I was full of rage. I was constantly fighting, provoking fights, and although I went to church with my mother as expected, I wanted nothing to do with God. But eventually, primarily through what I now see as God's love and grace coming to me through my mother, through my sisters and brother, and through Brenda as we began to date, the anger in me subsided so that I was able to hear one day a voice inside me. I, I can't remember exactly when or where, but I remember it distinctly. <clears throat> it said, you don't need God because this is a perfect world. You need God because it is an imperfect world. You're likely to experience the hurt and the sorrow you have already experienced many more times in your life. And if you're going to get from one end to the other, you're going to need God. And as the words were fading, I saw in my mind something like the galaxy or universe. I, I could see it all at once so that I could imagine an unmarked path, an imaginary path beginning on my left and ending on the right to Chestnut's friend, Professor Lewis Ruskin. 
This would be a nonsensical story. For me, it was a pivotal moment, an experience of mystical grace, of the mysterious X factor. When I look at this world, I am utterly amazed at how the poorest and most oppressed people, how those who suffer the most, are the least perplexed by the question of how a good God can allow suffering and evil to exist. It seems to be an issue primarily for comfortable North Americans and Western Europeans. For those most intimately acquainted with loss and sorrow, however, it seems that the crucifix is a symbol of comfort, a sign that God is personally with them as they endure injustice and evil of every sort. Those with more pleasant lives often find the sign of the crucifix itself to be an uncomfortable uh, and offensive symbol. Uh, Maybe worried about what it's going to cost them. I, I don't know. It intrigues me that the answer to the question of why there is misery and suffering and evil, then, is pretty much the same in all the great wisdom traditions. Something is amiss. The universe is in some sense fallen. So the Buddha said the whole world is on fire. The answer given in the Catechism from the Book of Common Prayer is that From the beginning, human beings have misused their freedom and made wrong choices. We create a good deal of our own misery in making bad decisions. And much human suffering comes from the damage we choose to do one another. Now, it is certainly easier to see how the Holocaust or genocide in Rwanda or the oppression of the poor and minorities in contemporary America Think of Emmett Till, or even how the problems in our own families with the freedom to equate all of that with the freedom to choose. It's easier to see that than it is to see that connection when we look at the suffering caused by natural disasters, freak accidents, or catastrophic diseases. However, if we think of creation as a continuous process on um, how the whole universe is in some sense free to choose and to make itself, then the suffering created by natural disasters may not seem so irreconcilable with the goodness of God. This is what Polkinghorne calls the free process defense. Shannon put it this way, Uh, He said, and I'm I'm paraphrasing and paraphrasing wildly here. He said that the road of evolution proceeds by groping and chance. So even on the human level, where there is considerable more control of things, it is impossible to calculate how many failures there are for one success. How many days of misery for one hour's joy? How many sins for a solitary saint? 
Statistically, at every degree of evolution, we find evil always and everywhere forming and reforming implacably in us and around us. But for me personally, while this is an explanation, it is not the one that satisfies me most. What I'm drawn to and most helped by are the illuminating stories of people who have, in either their suffering or in being unbearably troubled by injustice, have encountered God, and in that encounter found a resolution. The writer of Psalm 73 observes that religiously inclined people are quick to say God is good, but he says, and I'm of course again paraphrasing, that he had almost missed the goodness of God, that he had come perilously close to losing his faith because what he saw was that it's frequently not people who are good, but people who are arrogant and violent and greedy and deceitful and materialistic and greedy who have things their way. He just could not understand why, if God is fair, why, if God is just, why, if God is good, so many bad things happen to good people, and so many good things happen to really bad people. But then he goes into the temple, and there experiences the illuminating presence of God, and his unsettling, tormenting questions simply evaporates. In the same way, Job tells his friends that his suffering is just not fair. He has lived a good life and does not deserve the loss of his considerable wealth or of his children in the collapse of their house or of his health. Job says that if he could just meet with God face to face and argue his case, God would have to admit that Job has, in fact, been treated wrongly, that God is right. That, that Job is right and God is wrong. Then God speaks to Job out of a whirlwind. God provides neither legal justification nor philosophical answers. God doesn't really give an intellectually satisfying answer of any kind at all as to why bad things happen to good people or why bad things happen at all. But as the voice speaks from the whirlwind, Job is seized by a moment of total clarity. I had heard of you, he says, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Now, neither Psalm nor seven, uh, 73 nor Job um, provide, will provide a satisfactory uh, answer to anyone who's not on the spiritual path. Um, it, it's just not something that's going to make, it's just not going to make sense to them. In each case, uh, there is a problem, uh, there is intense suffering, and then they have this uh, profound spiritual encounter with God. And while outwardly nothing seems to have changed, everything has changed for them. I think it's 
Thomas Cahill said, there is an answer, but it's an answer that is beyond reason. That's what I have found to be true in my own experience. 